0: this is episode number 695 with dr lewis tunstall machine learning engineer at hugging face today's episode is brought to you by the aws insiders podcast by withfeeling.ai, the company bringing humanity into ai and by modelbit for deploying models in seconds welcome to the super data science podcast the most listened to podcast in the data science industry each week We bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, I have the great honor of being joined by the brilliant Louis Tunstall. Dr. Tunstall is an ML engineer at Hugging Face, one of the most important companies in data science today because they provide much of the most critical infrastructure for AI through open source projects, such as their ubiquitous Transformers library, which has a staggering 100,000 stars on GitHub. Lewis is a member of Hugging Face's prestigious research team where he is currently focused on bringing us closer to having an open source equivalent of ChatGPT by building tools that support RLHF, which is reinforcement learning from human feedback, and he's also big into large-scale model evaluation. On top of all that, Lewis was the first author of the book Natural Language Processing with Transformers, an exceptional best-selling book that was published by O'Reilly last year and covers how to train and deploy large language models using open-source libraries. Prior to Hugging Face, he was an academic at the University of Bern in Switzerland and held data science roles at several Swiss firms. He holds a PhD in theoretical and mathematical physics from Adelaide, in Australia. Today's episode is definitely on the technical side, so it will appeal most to folks like data scientists and ML engineers. But as usual, I made an effort to break down the technical concepts Lewis covered so that anyone who's keen to be aware of the cutting edge in natural language processing can follow along. In this episode, Lewis details what transformers are, why transformers have become the default model architecture in NLP in just a few years, how to train NLP models when you have few to no labeled data available, how to optimize LLMs for speed when deploying them into production, how you can optimally leverage the open-source Hugging Face ecosystem, including their Transformers library and their hub for ML models and data, how RLHF aligns LLMs with the output users would like, and how open-source efforts could soon meet or surpass the capabilities of commercial LLMs like ChatGPT. Exciting. All right, you ready for this freaking fantastic episode? Let's go. Lewis, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. Delightful to have you here. Where are you calling in from? Thanks for having me, John. I'm uh, calling from Switzerland. Nice. Yes. And by coincidence, the way that I managed to uh, to wrangle you into coming on this podcast was uh, on a recent trip that I had while I was flying to Switzerland. I was on the plane reading a book called Natural Language Processing with Transformers. And the first author on that book is you, Lewis Tunstall. And so I was reading it on the plane. And shortly after I landed, I was filming a podcast episode with a guest, Richmond Alake, who was on in episode number 685. And he has a podcast himself. At the end of the episode, I said, Richmond, do you have any great podcast guests that you would recommend? And his first recommendation was you. And I was like, that's crazy because I'm currently reading his book. I absolutely love it. It's obviously super topical. Everyone wants to hear about NLP with Transformers these days. So I'd love to have him on air. Richmond made an introduction and now you're here. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. It's a small world, really. Um, I also met Richmond very randomly. I think one day he just messaged me saying, hey, I have a podcast. Do you want to come on? And, (laughs) you know, it's just these things in life, you know, connections that happen kind of very, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, organically.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for taking the time for me and for him and for the listeners of all the podcasts out there that you, that you educate. We've got a super educational outline planned for today, and we're going to start right with Transformers. So, Lewis, what is a Transformer, and why is it such a big deal for natural language processing in particular?
1: Uh, great question. So um, maybe we can break it down in, into a couple of steps. So <clears throat> at the high level, the Transformer is just a, a neural network. And in particular, it's it's a deep neural network. Um, So you've probably heard of deep learning kind of taking over software in the world in the last few years. And um, it was developed by uh, researchers at Google um, around 2017 um, who were trying to find a a more efficient way to do machine translation. And up until that moment, the sort of standard way of doing any sort of machine translation task was um, basically using a type of network called an LSTM. And these LSTMs, they have this kind of recurrent structure, which means that basically you want to convert one sentence into another. And so you feed in the kind of words from, say, the English sentence. And then this network would kind of uh, iteratively process those words to then generate the translation. And these neural networks, they, they worked, these LSTMs, they worked quite well. Um, But they had a few issues, and and the major issue was that no one at the time could figure out how to kind of scale them, which means how could you increase the size of the neural network in terms of parameters, Um, and also how could you train on, you know, massive corpora. Um, And so there were a few ideas floating in the literature at the time. Probably the most uh, prominent one was something called attention mechanisms,
0: Mm.
1: and these attention mechanisms were also designed for machine translation where the idea was when we're trying to process language how can we encode um, some of the context that is um, surrounding the words in in some phrase so an example might be like if i say uh, my name is lewis and i come from australia then we sort of can imagine there's some kind of correlation or some relationship between the word lewis and the word australia there's, there's some sort of connection between those two words in that sentence. And what this attention mechanism um, did, essentially it's a layer in a neural network. It provided a way to essentially teach neural networks how to model those relationships um, in in a a fairly efficient way. And so what the researchers at Google said was like, okay, maybe we can just take this attention idea and just train a network based entirely on this with a few other tricks and things that that were common in the literature. And the result they found was First of all, a machine translation system that was state of the art at the time. Um, But more importantly, it was something that could basically be parallelized in GPUs. So instead of having to use um, a kind of recurrent structure where you have to process sequences uh, kind of word by word, you could basically feed in the full sequence and then this attention mechanism would compute all these correlations, which would then um, allow the the sort of models to be scaled up. And um, at the time, uh, this, was, this was already like a big deal for machine translation. Um, but then uh, researchers at OpenAI, uh, they took this idea one step further and they said, well, maybe we can actually just do this for sort of just general text generation. So instead of just having a single task like uh, machine translation, what if we just train um, a transformer that's just very, very good at modeling the next word in a sequence? And this was the start of what was called GPT or the Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. And in many ways, that marks the kind of start of this like revolution in transformers, where people eventually, you know, saw okay, this is both very good at generating text, um, and then as you scale up to the size of the internet and also to you know hundreds of billions of parameters, now you get these kind of models today, like you know GPT four and and ChatGPT.
0: Yeah, really cool explanation there. Um, I liked how you transitioned from LSTMs handling the sequential data to these transformers that have this attention mechanism that are able to take in the entire sequence at once. Uh, It's interesting how today I'm aware of a few different research strands that are now trying to blend these two kinds of approaches, because one of the big downsides of the transformer approach is that the larger the context window, so if you want to handle twice as many uh, tokens, so roughly you can think of them as words, if you want to handle twice as many in your input, because the transformer needs to attend to that entire sequence, it uh, vastly increases the amount of compute. So where LSTMs, because they work sequentially, as your sequence gets longer, the compute scales linearly. But mm-hmm. with transformers, it scales polynomially. Um, so like if, you're, if you expand your context window by X, your, uh, the amount of compute required goes up by X squared. Uh, So very, very quickly, way, way, way more computers required if you have these bigger context windows. And so um, I'm aware of these research threads where people are trying to find some way of kind of blending the way that LSTMs worked with transformers so that we can get the attention on the full context window without necessarily that
1: polynomial explosion in compute. Yeah, that's totally right. And I think um, uh, a lot of people kind of declared LSTMs were dead you know with transformers and um I, i'm trying to remember the name of this this uh latest model it's got like a funny acronym like i think like RKVMW or something like this um but um it, it basically it does exactly this it tries to blend the kind of best of both worlds so how do you have essentially infinite context length but also have the parallelizability and um from at least the demos that this um, set of researchers have provided, <clears throat> you can see that they are quite competitive with you know standard transformers today. So things that are like you know Llama and stuff. You see some of these uh, LSTM hybrids at the smaller scales uh, are quite competitive, and um, yeah. yeah, who knows? Maybe we'll see in in a few years that you know it's not just a transformer um, that is is the, the kind of key ingredient. Um, But I think today most people kind of default to transformers just because the ecosystem has kind of become fairly um, commoditized. So it's now relatively easy to fine-tune transformers and relatively easy, getting easier now to pre-train transformers. And I think um, there's a whole bunch of like tools around that, which, you know, for these more research-based projects, they often take a bit of time to kind of, you know, coalesce in the kind of general practitioner's toolbox. Yeah, and we will dig into a lot of these
0: tools, many of which you are involved in and Hugging Face Your Company are involved in, the leaders really, in making Transformers accessible and easy to train. So we'll get into that in a moment. But before we get there, let's dig some more into Transformers. So you have a whole chapter dedicated to Transformer anatomy. So maybe you can give us a a high-end overview on these key transformer anatomy concepts like encoders, decoders, and then some of them are encoder decoders. So how do these different kinds of transformers vary and why would you use one in in
1: a particular scenario or another? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, So the original transformer, um, as I mentioned before, was trying to model basically machine translation. And in this task, you've got some input sequence of text that you're trying to translate into an output sequence. And so the actual original transformer is called this encoder decoder architecture, where essentially you have um, an, an encoder which is taking your input sequence, and the role of this encoder is to essentially convert all of these kind of like raw tokens, um, so basically bits of bits of words and so on, um, into a sequence of embeddings. And these embeddings are essentially like the sort of numerical representation um, associated with each token in your sequence. And then the the decoder part of of the transformer then takes that sequence of embeddings, and then does as the name suggests decoding, which basically says, okay, given that input sequence, now how can I, for example, predict the next token in that sequence? So if you imagine that my input uh, sentence is, you know, my name is Lewis, um, and I want to translate it to German, then the input to the decoder will be basically these embeddings of my name is Lewis. And then the role is to now predict, given that input, that the first word now should be "main." so from German. So then Mein Name ist Lewis. And so that that would be the kind of uh, main distinction of these two components. And it actually goes back to before Transformers. Um, so people who are using like RNNs, there was a very common kind of sequence-to-sequence paper by Ilya Suskeva and others at Google. And that's where they kind of pioneered this, this approach. And it's very good at modeling these kind of like, you know, Input sequence, output sequence kind of tasks. And then um, basically, uh, the sort of two main sort of branches off that encoder decoder. um, The first big one was the GPT model from OpenAI. And so what they did was they said, okay, um, we're really interested in generative tasks. And so for these, the more important part is the decoder. And maybe we can basically save some compute by just throwing away the encoder part of the original transformer. And then we just get the model to predict the next word in the sequence, and we don't have to worry so much about this kind of sequence-to-sequence mapping. And that obviously turned out to be a a very impactful uh, branch or a type of transformer. And these transformers are called uh, decoder-only transformers. And then the other side of this was when Google, um, a few months later, um, basically released uh, BERT. And uh, BERT was... um, the, the sort of first encoder type transformer where they did the, the opposite thing. So they threw away the decoder and then they said, let's just focus on getting very good and rich representations um, of uh, NLP you know, sequences. And what that model can do very well is it can basically um, handle tasks where you're trying to extract information. So for example, um, let's say you're doing a text classification. So the representations that come from BERT um, or these encoder models are very good. Um, you can do question answering, you can do um, uh, sort of named entity recognition, these kind of like core NLP tasks, um, typically encoders uh, do, do do well in them, um, whereas the decoder ones are typically, you know, where you want to do things like summarization um, or chat or, you know, things like that today. Now, the boundaries are blurring because that was the story when we wrote the book, um, but then Um, there were other models that came out. So, for example, T5 is a a model uh, from from Google researchers um, where they showed that um, you can actually frame most NLP tasks as a sequence-to-sequence task. So if you ask, for example, um, how do I classify a movie review, then the kind of conventional approach would be, okay, take your transformer encoder, um, feed in the review. You now get some sort of embeddings from that you can then sort of look at those embeddings and say, okay, um, can I measure the sentiment associated with that input? Whereas the T5 architecture is this encoder-decoder, and instead what they say is, well, you can formulate every task, like you can say classify the following review as positive or negative, and then you put the review, and then the decoder now has to output you know, positive or negative as a word. And this model is far more versatile um, because you can now do many tasks with just the same architecture. Um, but uh, kind of traditionally, I would say the field has typically, you know, split into this encoder-decoder uh, branch, and so the, these T five models are widely used. But I, in, at least what I've seen in practice, people tend to kind of fixate on one or the other. Nice, um, yeah, yeah. That all makes perfect there. sense to me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> This episode is supported by the AWS Insiders podcast, a fast-paced, entertaining, and insightful look behind the scenes of cloud computing, particularly Amazon Web Services. I checked out the AWS Insiders show myself and enjoyed the animated interactions between seasoned AWS expert, Rahul. He's managed over 45,000 AWS instances in his career and his counterpart, Hillary, a charismatic journalist turned entrepreneur. Their episodes highlight the stories of challenges, breakthroughs, and cloud computing's vast potential that are shared by their remarkable guests, resulting in both a captivating and informative experience. To check them out yourself, search for AWS Insiders in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. My thanks to AWS Insiders for their support. So the the encoder decoder structure was the original concept. And I imagine that's the attention is all you need paper. That's right. And, um, and so with that original transformer paper, they, I think quite naturally, it makes a lot of sense to think, okay. Um, and it follows, it follows along with this concept that we've had in deep learning for a longer period of time, this autoencoder structure, where you're uh, taking some kind of information. So in this case, it's, strings of tokens, strings of kind of words, but um, this idea of encoding information into a an, into an abstract space is something we've been doing with all different kinds of data types with autoencoders for years. So, you know, it could be an image or a video, um, it could be a sound wave, and you can encode it from the raw input information, so pixels in the case of an image, and Mm -hmm. convert that into this uh, abstract representation where provided enough training data, that abstract representation is consistent regardless of the specific pixels. So um, you could have, you know, the the encoded representation could be like, you know, this is a brown dog by a red fire hydrant or whatever. And it's it's abstractly represented. It's not like written in language like that. It's based on a location in this high dimensional space but we can go from, you know, you could have one image of a brown dog around a red fire hydrant and the pixels could be completely different. Like there's no relationship between these two images of that same scene, but the encoded representations could be very similar. And then the decoder structure takes that, um, that that abstract representation and can return it back into the, the pixeled version um and so yeah that kind of idea of going from encoder to decoder i can see how that's where transformers started because it makes a lot of sense conceptually it's surprising to me and i still have a hard time really wrapping my head around how gpt architectures in particular work with the decoder only <laughs> like yes. um because for me it's so sensible to think about that intermediate step where we have that encoded representation and so it's yeah there's still this there's a bit that I still need to wrap my head around with these uh, 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 decoder-only structures that specialize in natural language generation like the GPT family, most recently GPT-4 and the other architectures that we have behind the chat GPT models. Um, and yeah, because they have this decoder-only, they end up specializing in being able to predict the next word in a sequence very well. Um, whereas as you highlighted there, the encoder-only structures like BERT um, specialize in tasks that don't require that kind of generation so um, more of a natural language understanding as opposed to natural language generation and yeah so as you said there's that natural language understanding we create that abstract uh representation from the raw natural language and then that abstract representation can be used downstream for all manner of tasks uh Yeah, so you gave lots of examples there, question answering, named entity recognition, text classification. Um, And yeah, so to me, conceptually, also the BERT thing, the encoding, the encoder only also makes a lot of sense. I'm like, cool, yeah, we go from a string of characters to this abstract representation. And then we can do things with those abstract representations. We can compare their similarity. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it allows for, you know, fast semantic retrieval of information, that kind of thing. Um, Anyway, I think I've, I've now been speaking for a very long time, and I can kind of tell that you're
1: <laughs> that you're ready to go yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I would say the thing that you mentioned about the decoder is um <clears throat> predicting the next word um or the next token in a sequence it, it's a surprisingly hard task right so if if you if you just give any human a random piece of text from the internet and say, you know what is the next word <clears throat> in that sequence. I think you'll have a hard time getting you know very good performance on that and so my understanding of, of these decoder models is that typically because this task is is rather hard when it's done at scale um, the models kind of pick up um, enough like let's say surface level capabilities around you know grammar um, and all the like, linguistic things that we, we do as humans online that then when you want to do a task like okay. Uh, sentiment analysis or um, I don't know write me a recipe for scrambled eggs um, they've kind of seen enough examples where that kind of generation itself is, is relatively straightforward right. um, of course the hard part is that if you try to do things that are very out of domain um, I think you typically find that's where you know not just these decoder models but most of these models they, they tend to struggle so they're very impactful um, but they still you know Today have some some fairly you know serious limitations. Yep,
0: nice summary there, and that does actually really conceptually. I think you might you might have just cracked it for me. That that was a really elegant explanation as to how these generators, yeah, just because they are specialized in this next word generation, uh, that's what the model weights are structured to be able to do. We don't need that intermediate uh, abstract representation. We can just skip right to predicting what the next word should be. As tricky. As that can be,
1: um, and so maybe just one yeah. one comment to make is that um, the, the the models that come from this are these so called pre trained models, and the, these models they're, they're kind of like very sophisticated autocomplete. Um, but if you play with ChatGPT, it's clearly you know much more than than autocomplete, and so there is um, another kind of whole secret source of ingredients around reinforcement learning and <clears throat> how do you model like human preferences and things. And that's kind of machinery that's like sort of tacked on top of this, like, you know, predicting the next word. So even though kind of mechanically we do say the, the model is predicting the next word in a sequence, uh, for these very impressive models, there's, there's a fair bit more, you know, happening, but we can talk about that later. Nice. Yeah,
0: we will talk about that later for sure. RLHF, uh, really exciting topic. And so, yeah, before we get there, um, with respect to, these um, With these kinds of tasks that transformers can perform, um, in your book, you specifically highlight feature extraction as something that transformers are really great at. so um, what is feature extraction, and how do transformers differ from traditional ways that we might have extracted features in natural language processing
1: yeah, sure that that, that particular part of the book was um I think born from um the experience Leandra and I had as uh, working as data scientists um, at, at Swiss companies at the time and um, you know a lot of the time as a data scientist you want to train the next fancy thing and you go oh I want, I want shiny new toys um, but then almost immediately you know your your manager will be like well we've got no label data um, or we've got very little label data or something like this and so then doing this whole like fine-tuning process uh, tends to be a bit of a struggle and so We showed in the book um, essentially how you can extract these embeddings um, from transformer models. And the idea here was to say that essentially, you know, the conventional way that people did this kind of pre-transformer time was to take a model like Word2Vec um, or, you know, some extension of this where you you essentially had um, kind of like universal representations um, for like every word in the vocabulary. So, for example, the, the word like dog, You know, it was just one vector or one representation um, that you could use uh, to build, you know, your kind of features that you would then build, say, a classifier on top of. And um, obviously, these um, transformers—they have these contextual representations, which means that um, the the representation of dog will actually depend on the surrounding words in in the sequence. And so, um, when you do feature extraction um, using transformers. You, you get this kind of nice uh, sort of representation of these embeddings, which uh, pick up that contextual information. and then you can use those embeddings um, for downstream tasks. For example, we, we do text classification in the book, but as you mentioned before, a very common one is doing things like you know semantic search. So if I want to embed all of the documents in my company, I can feed them through a transformer, I get vectors and then I can compare you know which documents are semantically similar to each other. Now, what we did do in the book was sort of like the vanilla thing, which was like take Bert and just feed, um, you know, uh, in this case it was like emotion tweets uh, through it to see, you know, what are the kind of uh, representation of these tweets according to their emotion. But um, there are better models, um, for example, sentence transformers. They have a special kind of training process where it's essentially a Siamese network of two transformers kind of like learning how to model Um, The semantic similarity of documents, and so if you ever want to actually do feature extraction for things like search and stuff, you're you're much better off using these like special sentence transformers than you know just an off-the-shelf. But
0: very cool Uh, sentence transformers. I'll be I'll do my best to remember to include a link to those in the show notes. That sounds super useful um, for people doing these kinds of um, yeah these kinds of applications where you're you're interested. So this kind of I guess this builds on the conversation we were having earlier with architectures like Bert being encoder only and converting things into that encoder space. We now have specialized approaches like sentence transformers um, that are even better for getting those um, yeah those abstract representations um, well aligned. Very cool. And this idea of the the token dog being represented um in an abstract high dimensional space as opposed to as like a one hot encoded word that's just that's kind of uh yeah in this in the traditional way of doing natural language processing that word dog you might have needed like a taxonomy to say mm-hmm. okay like you know dog is related to cat in this way they're all like in the animal family and now with transformers we can have this totally data driven approach where we don't need to be maintaining all these manual taxonomies. And it has way more flexibility because as you say, when we come across the word dog in a sentence, like I ate a hot dog with relish, it (laughs) doesn't consider that dog to be in any way related to a cat. Um, And so, yeah, it's, yeah, I read about this a lot in, uh, in my my book, Deep Learning Illustrated, came out uh, many years before yours, so I didn't have anything about transformers. But even in that area, working with LSTMs and approaches like word 2 vec um, or doc 2 vec, mm-hmm. um, document to vector, we all you know that's a big point that I make in my book is that you're going to get way better results using deep learning and this data driven approach as opposed to trying to manually hard code meaning in natural language processing. And yeah, there's so many benefits, obviously in terms of human time on tasks and just in terms of quality. Like it's just it ends up working way better um as we as
1: probably most of our listeners have now seen with tools like ChatGPT. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's funny to think that um I think we're old enough to have been the generation who lived, you know, pre and post-Transformers. So you know, I remember doing NLP in the, in the ancient days where you had to think about stemming and, you know, h- how you actually pre-process your data. Like if you extract, you know, punctuation and stuff mm-hmm. and you, you have all these nightmares and you're not quite sure if it's going to work. And then when you suddenly have a transformer and you just say, well, I just tokenize it and more or less, you know, for most tasks, uh, the fine tuning will work. That was for me quite a, a big, you know, update to my way of working.
0: The future of AI shouldn't be just about productivity. An AI agent with the capacity to grow alongside you long-term could become a companion that supports your emotional well-being. Paradot, an AI companion app developed by With Feeling AI, reimagines the way humans interact with AI today. Using their proprietary large language models, Paradot AI agents store your likes and dislikes in a long-term memory system, enabling them to recall important details about you and incorporate those details into dialogue without LLM's typical context window limitations. Explore what the future of human AI interactions could be like this very day by downloading the Paradot app via the Apple App Store or Google Play, or by visiting peridot.ai on the web. Yeah, exactly. The, the meatiest chapter um, of my book was a chapter on all these NLP preprocessing techniques that you needed to go through. And uh, it was actually funny, when the book was being copy edited when the copy editor finished that one she was like oh my goodness that was like (laughs) such a like such a crazy journey It was so complicated it's such a long chapter and now yeah it's just like it's probably just some like one-liner that i can do with the hugging face transformers library (laughs) i don't need to worry about it at all um cool um so these kinds of conversations that we're having about what's going on inside a transformer model or even more broadly within a deep learning architecture why should a practitioner care or should a practitioner care like why does somebody need to understand how a transformer works lewis um, if they're working on nlp problems
1: yes i think it's a bit of a philosophical question um, because in some sense it depends a little bit on you know um how how deep and curious you want to go into into a topic. Um, so I, I would say at a very technical level, um, if you're training transformers, so whether you're fine-tuning them or, or especially if you're pre-training them, um, at some point you're going to hit some errors. And, and those errors are going to be maybe the data is not set up right, maybe you know you have things on the wrong CUDA device, all this annoying stuff. And um, when you start looking at the the stack trace, you're going to see some like um, you know, lines of code is going to say, "Hey, in modeling underscore Bert on this line in this attention layer, there's a problem." And at least for me personally, having an understanding of of how the computations are running um, in the network, it helps you kind of uh, iterate faster through and debug things much quicker. Um, and that's more just like the practical side of things. But then at the the sort of like let's say more fundamental level, it's it's like any other piece of knowledge, right? Like if um, if you're trying to build something, it's really, really useful if you know how like the the, the things you're building with work because um, not only does it help you, as I said before, debug stuff, but it also helps you think about how you can extend them <laughs> because if you sort of never go lower than just the sort of high-level API of transformers, you may encounter some tasks um, in your work, where you need to do more sophisticated things, like for example, you know, blend different types of heads on the transformer for like multitask training, and then that's going to get to a point where it's going to be very, very useful to have have a good understanding. So, I would say that those are roughly the sort of two main things I would suggest. And to be honest, in general, it's just fun, right? It's good to at least for me intellectually, it's it's fun to know, you know, how how these things you know work. Um, and I, I do recommend everyone just once in their life implement a very simple transformer like we do in in the book, Um, just in the same way that, you know, everyone has to implement backprop once in their life. Uh, This is, I think, you know, the, the the next step. Nice. Yeah,
0: I agree with you on both your points for debugging as well as for building creatively. It's the second one that I in particular think is valuable. If the more that a data scientist can dig into the underlying fundamentals like linear algebra and the partial derivative calculus, uh, the probability theory that underlie that underlies machine learning, um, including deep learning, which is a, a kind of machine learning and transformers, which is a spe- specialized deep learning architecture, like fundamentally under the hood, we have these relatively simple mathematical operations going on. And if you understand those things that are going on under the hood, it allows you to have Way more flexibility and creativity, and the ways that you can be solving problems. So, like you gave that example there about blending attention heads for a multitask problem for training a, a multitask architecture, and there's there's an unlimited way. Like it's like who was giving this an analogy recently? I think it might have been Harpreet Sahota who was in uh, episode number six ninety three. So just a week ago, um, that episode was released, and in that episode, uh, he talks about like Lego blocks. I think he has, he has young mm-hmm. kids. And so, uh, you know, when you when you understand what all of these different blocks are, um, it allows you to have an effectively infinite amount of flexibility in how those blocks are combined and the things you can do with it. And I find, I see with my team with, uh, at my company Nebula, on our data science team, When we're trying to, in particular, um, productionize what we're doing, in order to have that work efficiently for the specific use case that we have at the platform, almost every time there isn't some, like there's, there's lots of tools out there that allow you to, with one line of code, productionize your model from a Jupyter notebook or whatever. And those tools are great and they're really amazing, but they also only work in a relatively narrow set of circumstances. There's all kinds of situations that we encounter regularly in production, and that I imagine lots of companies do, where there is no turnkey approach. You're going to need something unique that nobody has ever done before in order to have a performant uh, experience, real-time experience for your users um, that blends together all of the kind of the backend things that are going on in the, and yep. yeah. so. Um. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm a huge <laughs> evangelist, I guess, for understanding the building blocks so much so that uh, regular listeners will know I have this machine learning foundation series that is mostly available on YouTube already. Uh, and there's a GitHub repo where all the code is available that covers linear algebra, calculus, probability theory, uh, algorithms and data structures, statistics, um, because, yeah, I think it's so important. It's so fundamental to know these fundamentals. Totally agree. Nice. All right. So thank you for letting me talk so much. (laughs) Uh, No worries. It's it's interesting. Good stuff. Um, So, all right, let's move on to uh, another topic from your book. So um, one of the challenges that we encounter as data scientists, particularly when we're um, working with uh, large amounts of data, like we want in transformer architectures, you already mentioned this kind of earlier when you were talking about how you and Leandro were trying to come up with feature extractors and or, or trying to come up with some model, and your manager would say, Oh, but we don't have any label data. This is super common in natural language mm-hmm. processing that we have access to large amounts of data, like you're just a scrape of all of the internet. But um, but we don't have any labels for those data. So we we just have the sequences. We don't have, you know, this uh for for whatever task, um, you know, it could be some classifier task where a common example is sentiment. So, you know, is this string of, is, is this tweet or is this movie review a positive review or is it a negative review? Um, you know, we, we might have access to billions of tokens, but maybe only a few hundred of these labels or maybe none of these labels so I know this is something that you talk a lot, a lot about in your book. Uh, would you mind sharing some of your favorite strategies for tackling this common NLP problem?
1: Sure. And this was, uh, I think, born out of uh, pain, basically. I mean, <laughs> there's a pain that you have when you're a data scientist, you know, trying to solve a, a, a business problem with little, little label data. Um, so... I'll tell you the, the way we kind of did it in the book, and then I'll tell you a little bit about what's changed since, the I think, the advent of, you know, ChatGPT and GPT-4, which for me personally have kind of <clears throat> made me rethink a little bit um, how, how I would tackle this. Um, so the first one is um, if you've got, like, no-label data, and this can be relatively common, especially for extractive tasks like named entity recognition or question answering um, because the the price of labeling the data is quite quite a lot. Um, There there aren't a a huge amount of um, tools available yet uh, for tackling those kind of tasks. And and for there, you you might be better off just going for a generative model like um, like GPT-4 or ChatGPT and saying, hey, here are a few examples of what I'm trying to do. So this so-called like few-shot prompting, can you please, you know, now complete the, the final task? And uh, these generative models are, are quite good at following those types of instructions, um, but um, if you're doing something that is is more like, um, say, text classification, um, then there's there's far more tools available for this. So, um, for example, in the Transformers library, we have uh, zero-shot uh, pipelines or zero-shot classification pipelines. And um, what these uh, pipelines do is they basically formulate the classification task. Um, as a sort of what's called a, an NLI task or a natural language inference task where you take the, the context, which is the thing you're trying to classify, you have a sentence that is like a template to say, you know, is this positive or negative? And then you get the model to fill in the third part of that um, of that uh, sequence. And um, this, this personally has always been like a good baseline. You just run this. It's like two lines of code. You run it over your data set. It gives you a, a rough idea of, of, of where you are. Um, but then if you want to go beyond that, um, probably the the sort of two um, uh, approaches I would recommend, um, one is called um, SetFit. It's a technique I developed with our uh, researchers at, um, at Intel. And uh, this is called a uh, sentence transformer <clears throat> or few-shot learning for sentence transformers. And um, essentially, we showed that you can classify documents across different domains with usually around 8 to, you know, 16 examples per class and uh, you get results that are fairly comparable to training on the full uh, data set. Um, And this, as I mentioned, it works well for text classification. Um, But if you want to go beyond that, then there are these other techniques called um, parameter-efficient fine-tuning techniques. Um, And here the idea is to use a transformer like T5, which I discussed briefly is kind of a general-purpose transformer that can solve many tasks. And then you you try to basically uh, prompt it Um, in a certain way so that, you know, if you've only got a couple of labelled examples, you can still solve the question answering task um, in in a fairly efficient way. Um, And so I would say those are like the the sort of two main things I would recommend. Um, But today, seriously, um, using these uh, large language models is also, you know, if if you don't have security concerns with your data because of your company, just testing the API is often a, a good start, I would say.
0: Deploying machine learning models into production doesn't need to require hours of engineering effort or complex homegrown solutions. In fact, data scientists may now not need engineering help at all. With ModelBit, you deploy ML models into production with one line of code. Simply call modelbit.deploy in your notebook and ModelBit will deploy your model with all its dependencies to production in as little as 10 seconds. Models can then be called as a REST endpoint in your product or from your warehouse as a SQL function. Very cool. Try it for free today at modelbit.com. That's M-O-D-E-L-B-I-T.com. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on all the solutions that you suggested. The one that I didn't know of the ones that you've mentioned is SetFit. I just quickly looked it up and looks super cool. So I'll be sure to include a link to the SetFit GitHub repo. Um yeah, looks like a really cool way to be using few-shot learning without needing to prompt yourself uh, in order to classify sentences. And then the parameter-efficient fine-tuning peft is something I've talked about on the show a fair bit. I have an episode dedicated to the low-rank adaptation LoRa method for doing that uh, in episode number 674. Very cool. Um, and uh, But yeah, it is it is crazy how you can be using a tool like GPT-4 and API like GPT-4, particularly for the complicated, like they were using GPT-3.5 prior to March of this year. There were all manner of tasks that I was like, "Wow, it would be amazing if I could just ask a model to do this. And, you know, GPT-3.5 might be able to do it a portion of the time, but not with an accuracy that was high enough that I could be confident about using those data for training a model. Yep. But then with the GPT-4 overnight with its release in March, I was like, "Oh, let's try some of those use cases again," and it nails it every single time. But yeah, as you say, there's there's potentially reasons why you might not want to use GPT-4. So you your your company might not be comfortable with sending those data off. And then also the uh, OpenAI terms of service do not allow you to be using GPT-4 to create a competitor to GPT-4. So it depends on exactly, you know, if if you're not going to be creating a chatbot with the uh, data that you label, then it's probably fine. I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, there's, there's also, there's, uh, and we're going to talk about this more uh, uh, in the episode later on, but there's, we're getting really powerful open source alternatives To GPT-4 emerging, like every week, as you and I were talking about before uh, we started recording this episode, every week it seems there's some major release of an open source approach that gets closer and closer to being as good as GPT-4. And some of those don't have commercial use constraints. And so it might be, (laughs) by the time this episode is live, uh, it might be the case that you can be using a completely open source. Commercial use model that's as good as GPT-4. And then you can be running it on your own infrastructure. You don't need to be worrying about sending proprietary data off to a third party. Um, and, you, but you, and you might get comparable results. So, really, really, it, it, yeah, something that you and I were touching on also before starting recording is just that with how quickly things are moving and these capabilities that are emerging from so many people like yourself getting so deep into the open source opportunities here and releasing these models, these capabilities for all of us, it's an unprecedentedly exciting time for me in my career as a data scientist.
1: Uh, That's cool to hear. Um, I just had one more thing where you might want to use an open source model. Um, So um, I was playing with ChatGPT the other day, and I wanted to see uh, if I could use it as as a writing assistant. And so I started uh, just taking some passages of text from uh, the um, George R. Martin's Game of Thrones, and I just asked it, you know, can you like complete, uh, you know, th- this this part of the text, to you know, or rephrase it? And because Game of Thrones is so gory and you know violent and all that stuff, uh, it just refused. It said, no, nah. <laughs> like uh, I, as a language model, I will not engage in blah blah. blah. And I think what this shows is that for these like sort of next frontier models, which have a lot of this so-called alignment uh, built into them, um, it's it's great to have that um, for like general purpose chatbots. But if you want like a very domain specific thing, um, you probably want to have something that is more adapted to to your data or 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 the things that you're interested in. And so I can imagine a future where you, you have like these kind of very powerful capable systems, like from OpenAI and others. Um, but then uh, companies use a lot of open source models then to just do the the more domain-specific stuff where, you know, for the reasons you mentioned about data leaving, but also the use case itself may not be supported, you know, just through the API.
0: Right, when you need more violent language.
1: <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's maybe not the best example. But, <laughs> you know, if, if, you know if, I mean, the, the thing it's is, is that I that want exactly George R. Martin to finish is, his book, right? Is, I, I've yeah, been yeah. waiting for Game of Thrones for years now and I just want him yeah. to finish the last one. So, you know, if he's yeah. listening... Um, he should just use ChatGPT or he can't. Yeah. So
0: <laughs> No, it's a good example. Like there are the folks at OpenAI spent six months from when the GPT four architecture was trained to uh, to put barriers around it in terms of security. And um, you know, they I, I think they've done an exemplary job. Um, in, in retrospect, I think it's amazing that they spent those six months. Cause ima- I imagine that there would have been, this is completely speculative. No one has ever said anything to me, uh, to suggest this, but I just speculate that, you know, in a big organization like that, there were probably some people that were like, this is safe enough. We've got to get this out. This is crazy. Uh, but then, you know, some other factions were able to be like, no, like there's still these really dangerous use cases that we need to handle. Um, we need to do more testing before this goes out. But it does mean that, you know, there are all kinds of perfectly uh, legitimate classic books, like you're saying, like the Game of Thrones series. You know, people love that series, um, but it it has a a level of violence that is completely fine to buy in a commercial product. Yet, you know, the, the folks at OpenAI have decided, you know, to have these safeguards that mean that level of violence that's okay in a commercial product that you can buy as a book is not acceptable in their particular tool. And so I, you know, I am, <laughs> there are probably violent use cases that we don't want a, yes. a chatbot to be able to do under any circumstances, but being able to generate a you know, fantasy novel prose, maybe you shouldn't be one of them. Yeah, yeah. totally. All right, so Lewis, once we've created our, uh, our George R.R. R. Martin bot, <laughs> that can generate uh violent prose uh uh when we want to make that model um efficient in production um that's something that's a huge challenge with transformers and i know that it's something that you tackle in your book so could you outline for our listeners the kinds of uh practical things that we can do to take these very large language models and have them be useful in real time in production for, say, a user of a platform that has an LLM running in the background.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I would say also the, the kind of techniques I mentioned they they often depend very much on the use case and also the the size of the model. Um, so there are things that kind of work okay for smallish models, um, but then they just don't really apply at larger at larger scales. Um, and, and in the book, we kind of cover, I would say, three main Topics or areas. Um, One is called knowledge distillation. And um, this is an old idea, it goes back to Jeff Hinton and and others before him, Um, where the idea is that you've got a a capable model. So this might be something that is like, let's call it the teacher. And this model um, is too big to deploy efficiently. Maybe you want to deploy something on the edge or, you know, um, in in a cheaper way. And so this knowledge distillation technique allows you to basically take. Um, essentially, information from this teacher model, and kind of uh, imbue it in a much smaller, more efficient uh, model. And when it works, you typically get comparable performance. You, you take a small amount of a hit in in your say accuracy, um, but often the trade off is worth it because you know in real life situations, accuracy isn't just the only metric. You're worried about latency, you're worried about cost, and things like that. Um, so this works quite well for models in the sort of hundred million parameter range. Um, so things like BERT, it works well. For small GPT models, it works okay. Um, but no one has kind of figured out how to crack this effectively at the very large scales of like, you know, tens of billions of parameters. And that's why, for example, we haven't yet seen, as far as I know, um, something analogous to like, you know, distill um, LAMA 65B or something like that. So that, that will often get you roughly maybe a a 2x reduction in latency, you can usually compress your model uh, about half. Um, And then there are other techniques which we discussed. So the most common one that's used for for many use cases is called quantization. And uh, the basic idea here is to take the precision of the weights that the model was trained in and just cast them um, to a lower precision. So typically things like um, 8-bit or 4-bit is now the, the sort of new standard. And this then, because you've now got lower bits, you can um, basically you know, do your map moles or matrix multiplications um, faster and use, and use less memory. Um, and you know, we can talk, there, are, there are a bunch of different quantization strategies we can talk about, but um, the, the sort of other element we, we mentioned is this idea of pruning. So here the basic idea is um, how can you kind of delete weights in the network altogether um, but still preserve um, the, the sort of overall performance of the model. And when we wrote the, the book, the sort of current state of the art um, was a technique developed at Hugging Face called movement pruning um, where you, you basically, it's, it's a pruning technique designed specifically for fine-tuning uh, transformers. Um, but all of the kind of hardware, that, that sort of like the sort of consumer hardware um, that existed basically didn't really help you because even though you delete all these weights, you need to save them as sparse matrices. And then these sparse matrices, they they don't really get any bit boost on like standard like you know Intel hardware. Um, so we kind of concluded that pruning at the time wasn't quite mature enough um, to, to to be used in production. Um, but my colleagues at Intel have said that you know they've now got some quite you know, impressive uh, approaches where you, you you do get genuine sparsity and you know fast fast latency. So those are the three main techniques, and we can kind of dive deeper if you if you want.
0: Yeah, yeah. Model distillation, quantization, pruning. Um, yeah These are the three that come to mind for me as well in terms of uh, production deployments. Great examples that you gave there. And cool to have you break down for us so clearly the kinds of circumstances where one of these approaches might work well um, versus another. Um, I think I will actually leave that topic there and not dig too much deeper because there's still so many more things that I want to sure, sure. uh, get
1: into while mm-hmm. we're recording.
0: But maybe I could um,
1: uh, mention one thing yeah. specifically about um, uh, like generative models. So mm-hmm. um, th- these, these like kind of techniques I mentioned, they're very like kind of generic and <laughs> you can usually apply them, whether it's an encoder or a decoder, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the, the big bottlenecks when you're doing uh, chatbots is having a fast um, response, right? So if I ask a question like, you know, what's the weather like today? I don't want to wait a minute to get my, you know, text back. And uh, there's been a lot of um, cool innovation around streaming tokens. So, this idea of like sending the user, like kind of like, you know, bit by bit the answer. And that's what you see in ChatGPT, right? Like, you you don't have to wait and then get the full answer. You can see the answer being kind of generated on the fly. And um, one of my colleagues at Hugging Face, called Olivier, he built this very, very cool um, server called uh, Text Generation Inference, which uh, not only does this token streaming, but it does really impressive optimizations of the transformer architecture. So you can do things like you can fuse um, operations in the transformer um, to to basically run faster on certain CUDA kernels. And you can do like cool things to do with like um, basically how you shard the model across different GPUs. Um, So if you're doing any sort of generative text task, um, as far as I know today, this is like the kind of current state of the art uh, for deployment.
0: Nice, yeah. What was the name of that uh, library or approach one time? Uh, Text Generation Inference. Wow, super cool, Louis. I had not heard of the Hugging Face LLM Text Generation Inference library before, but uh, I will definitely be checking that out because it sounds like exactly what I need for a lot of use cases at Nebula with our production deployments. Thank you so much for sharing that. No worries. and uh, it ties in perfectly into the next topic that I wanted to cover, which is the hugging face ecosystem in general, and all of these open source tools that Huggingface releases for the public. So what is the hugging face ecosystem, and what role does it play in the practical application of transformers in NLP, in NLP? So you've obviously given us a bit of a taste here already with the text generation and inference library, but that only scratches the surface. I mean, the Hugging Face Transformers library is fundamental to this entire movement. That's right.
1: Yeah, and and just I think last week it uh, crossed hundred thousand uh, GitHub stars, so that was a, a pretty nice milestone. Um, I think it's uh, one of the first uh, machine learning libraries uh, to hit that. And um, as you said, right, like in the origins of Hugging Face, um, for for those who actually don't know, Hugging Face started out as a chatbot uh, company. Um, building um, a, a chatbot for for like teenagers and then um, Tom Wolf and uh, Victor San they they saw this transformer release uh, from from Google with bert and they were like okay we need to put this in pytorch because you know tensorflow is uh at you know not not what we want to program in and so they did a, a fast port of that to pytorch and then it just exploded so you know I think it coincided almost at the perfect time where the community was very quickly getting excited about PyTorch, and then they had seen you know the the performance of Bert, and now they could just run this um, themselves. And um, of course, the the first thing that you face when you're trying to build such a library is like, okay, where do you get models from? And um, in those days, a lot of models were basically shared um, on Google Drive um, or on GitHub, and The the challenge um, that you have is that as the field moves very fast, um, how do you kind of synthesize all of these different uh, pre-trained models? And this kind of like gave birth to this idea of the Hugging Face hub, um, which originally started off as as like a a model hub where basically you had the pre-trained weights of BERT and other transformers that followed it. And then you had a, a very sort of nice integration between the transformers library and the Hugging Face hub, so you could basically pull models from the hub, run them locally on your machine, and you could also then, you know, push your train models back to the hub so that, you know, you didn't have to again share them with your colleagues with a Google Drive link. You could just say, "Hey, check out my my model, you can now test it yourself." And in machine learning, right, models are kind of often the focus of attention, but in reality, there's like a a much wider range of things that you have to worry about. So of course it's like data, like where do you get your training data from and how do you um, kind of curate that data? And so this, um, eventually the hub kind of expanded in scope to now host data sets. So we now have um, several tens of thousands of data sets. And these data sets are contributed primarily through the community. So um, we have some very cool ones like, you know, the classic ones from NLP, but also you've got um, nowadays not just NLP, but like many modalities. So we have vision data sets, we have time series data sets, um, NLP of course. And um, what's cool about this is you get this kind of, this like kind of like ecosystem building where people go, oh, now I can take a data set from the hub. I can take a pre-trained model. I can train a new model on that combination. I can push that model back to the hub and then other people can build on top of that or they can feed it into, into their demos. And so the sort of ecosystem today is, uh, broadly speaking, a collection of open source libraries um, built with a kind of layer of the hub. So the hub is basically tightly integrated to all of these open source libraries. And um, the kind of mission of, of what we have at Hugging Face is to basically provide these tools to the community so they can then go and build you know, cool companies, cool products. And you know, we have our own paid services on top of this. But kind of in in the core of the company, it's fundamentally open source. Very cool. That was a
0: great breakdown. And there were some details in there that I wasn't aware of, particularly with respect to the initial history of where the Hugging Face Hub uh, emerged from. Uh, however, I did know about the 100,000 GitHub stars. And yeah, it is. there's only a few machine learning libraries like PyTorch and TensorFlow that have that. Yeah, many. exactly. Um, so very, very cool. Um, yeah, we're really grateful for your work. Stretching back even pre-pandemic, I, I don't know the exact year, but I know it was pre-pandemic because I was still working in an office, <laughs> which <laughs> I haven't since. Uh, and so uh, a colleague of mine, Grant Balevelt, he was saying, so I guess it was around 2018, 2019, he was just marveling at all the cool things that Hugging Face was doing. And he was like, this is the coolest machine learning company in the world. So awesome that you work there. Uh, It must be an amazing atmosphere. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So specifically, you are a machine learning engineer at Hugging Face. What does that mean? How does that intersect with the kind of stuff that you write about in your book? And what are some of the exciting projects that you're working on?
1: Yeah. So at at Hugging Face, the the roles that we have are are quite uh, broad in scope. So. Um, even though uh, formally I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer, I've also done um, a lot of work on education. So previously I, I um, worked on on a course for Transformers that we offer to the community. Um, and also nowadays what I focus more on is, is typically around the sort of research side of things. So how can we build um, tools and artifacts around this domain of RLHF, which we, we mentioned earlier. Um, so I would say depending on which kind of branch of the company you're working on, um, a day in the life can, uh, can look a little bit differently, but more or less, um, we all collaborate um, over uh, our open source repos, and this can range from you know building features for, for libraries like Transformers, or you know just uh, p- uh, patching bug fixes and so on. Um, but the the kind of core goal in, in general is to always try and pick the sort of most impactful kind of projects uh, to work on, and uh, as a result, this means that. Uh, you have to be very reactive um, to what's happening externally to the company. So, um, for example, when Stable Diffusion landed, um, uh, my colleagues at Hugging Face they very, very quickly um, had this uh, Diffusers library, uh, you know, having the integration of this of this model from from Stability. And um, when I say quickly, I'm talking on the scale of days to weeks. So, you know, it's it's like you have to be very, very fast to to keep up with uh, what the community is doing. And uh, we see that also today with large language models, you know, as you said before, we have all these new models landing, so um, within the sort of transformers side of things, you need to be able to kind of quickly um, decide whether to integrate it uh, into the core library or not. Um, so th- that, that's sort of uh, in broad terms, what, what I do specifically today, as I mentioned before, is is more around uh, trying to figure out um, if this reinforcement learning stuff actually works. So we we kind of have. Um, I would say a few existence proofs from OpenAI and uh, Anthropic that uh, that it does, and you know, talking to ChatGPT gives you a sense that it does work. Um, but we we haven't yet seen in the community a, a very clear end-to-end example um, showing that not only does uh, reinforcement learning kind of work in a technical sense, but it actually makes for for a better model that is you know more aligned with with human preferences. And there have been a few um, attempts to do this, but the the kind of um, I would say the conclusions have always been a bit murky because the evaluation of these systems is very complex. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of primarily, what I'm, I'm looking at now is is in this aspect of, of training and evaluating these uh, you know, more complex beasts.
0: Yeah, could you break down for us a bit more this RLHF
1: concept? So,
0: you know, what is it? What's involved? What data are needed? Um, you know.
1: Why? Why did people try this at all in the first place? Sure. So, again, OpenAI were were the pioneers here, um, and they they actually built towards <clears throat> ChatGPT in, in in several kind of impressive papers. So, their their kind of first foray in this direction was um, uh, learning to summarize, and what they were interested in was we know that language models, um, especially generative models, uh, are good at you know generating summaries. But people often complain that these summaries um, aren't very good. So when, when you try to measure you know, how good is a summary, you have some kind of automatic metrics like the Rouge score, uh, which try to measure kind of the overlap of your, of your summary with a kind of reference summary. Um, but generally speaking, people had always kind of recognized summarization models weren't great. So what they did instead was they said, well, why don't we get the model <laughs> to generate some summaries And we show those summaries to humans. And then we'll get the humans to rate which of the summaries is best. And so the idea was that instead of trying to use some metric like Rouge, which always has some limitations, the thing we really care about is people reading (laughs) summaries. So let's just teach the model um, how to to learn that. And so the the recipe is relatively simple on paper. Basically, you take your um, summarization model. You, you generate some summaries, you show them to humans, they label them, and then you train a second model, which is basically a classifier, um, so this is called a reward model. And this classifier is basically learning how to distinguish good and bad summaries. And then what you do is you take those two pieces and you do a third step, which is where the reinforcement learning comes in. And essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to optimize the model to produce better summaries. And reinforcement learning essentially has a, has a loop where you can essentially uh, generate some summaries from the model, your reward model will basically rank them and say, okay, that's a good summary, that's a bad summary. And that gives you essentially a signal to sort of update the weights of the model uh, in a direction that is more aligned with whatever the reward model is is telling you. And if you do those kind of three steps, what they showed in their paper is that the resulting models um, basically were preferred much more by humans Uh, for summaries than, you know, the the baseline. And that's kind of like the the recipe that most people today are are trying to follow, um, but now at much larger scales, and not just for one task, for summarization, but also for, you know, multiple tasks. And uh, the modern version of that recipe is that instead of having just summarization data, you now try to collect a large amount of what's called instruction data. So these are things like, write me a recipe for an omelet, give me 10 things to do in Paris, all these kind of very creative tasks that we we have as humans, or, you know, how do I write uh, Python code for X? And you train a model that is able to follow those instructions, but this model will always have this kind of problem that it may, you know, produce outputs that are a bit, you know, problematic or it just veers off in the wrong direction. And so you do those, that again, that human preference step, the reinforcement learning step, and then if everything works, you you should get something like, you know, (laughs) chat GPT, but um no one has quite succeeded yet and i think that's where there's a, a bit of an arms race at the moment in the in the open source community to to see who is like first uh, doing that yeah
0: very cool so i'll quickly try to summarize back to you what rlhf is or kind of paraphrase it and then let's dig right into that exciting arms race sure. so the idea with this reinforcement learning from human feedback at a high level is that humans providing so probably most of our listeners. And if you haven't, you have got to use ChatGPT. A study actually recently came out that something only like 15% of Americans have used ChatGPT. Uh, Hopefully in the data science community, it's above 90%. And (laughs) if you're listening to this right now and you haven't used ChatGPT yet, you've got to, or or maybe... So if you're using like the GPT-4 API, (laughs) but haven't used the ChatGPT interface, I will forgive you. Um, But in the ChatGPT interface, you have the opportunity after every single um, output that you get from the model, you can give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And so that that um, thumbs up or thumbs down can then be used as training data for this RLHF um, and and the lose outlined the steps uh, as to how this happens in more detail, but the summary point is that it allows The model to have outputs that are more aligned with the kind of thing that you would like to see. So, going way back to earlier in our conversation, this means that these state of the art generative models like GPT 4 are more than just a sophisticated autocomplete because there's this additional layer, at least this one, maybe even more that we don't know about, uh, layer of sophistication that means that the outputs are more just more like what you expect in, um, in a conversation maybe with another human or maybe not, not even with another human, but just the kind of output that you want when you provide the kind of input that you do. And because of the, uh, how popular ChatGPT is, there's a huge amount of this training data, presumably, that allows OpenAI to be building a moat Around what they've done. And we have, however, seen a lot of open source groups. So there are lots of open source models that have come out in recent months that have built on things like the llama architecture mm-hmm. um, that I talked about back in episode 670. And so doing things like taking that llama architecture, which was like just a sophisticated autocomplete, and then using instruction fine tuning afterward. Um, using open-source versions of these kinds of thumbs-up, thumbs-down human data um, in order to fine-tune Llama to be able to be more like GPT-4. So uh, some of these architectures are like Alpaca. Vicuña is one that Mm -hmm. is really popular. Uh, And there are ones that also have complete (coughs) commercial use um, uh, terms. So things like GPT-4-all-J, Um, is completely suitable for commercial use. But anyway, so these, the main point is that um, with RLHF, um, yeah, we get way better models. And it's really cool that there's folks out there trying to, with the relatively limited open source data, relative to probably what someone like OpenAI has, doing the best that we can to be approximating the way that GPT-4 performs. And that brings me to my next question, Lewis, which, which is that as we talked about, these are really exciting times. We have lots of people like you, like everyone at Hugging Your Face and thousands of other people around the world are racing to be building open source tools that are as good as GPT-4. Maybe it's even conceivable that, and this isn't actually something that I've thought out loud before, uh so I'd love to hear your input on this. Maybe it's even conceivable that the next big breakthrough in these conversational agents or in generative AI or in machine learning in general will be open source as opposed to coming from a commercial entity like OpenAI.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's definitely possible and we already see um a wide variety of uh sort of directions that the community has taken um to tackle some of the engineering challenges. So, um, for example, the, we talked briefly about Laura um, or this low rank adaptation methods. Um, this is kind of uh, the, the the driving um, strand at the moment in all of these instruction fine tuning experiments that the community is doing. Um, because, for example, if you want to try to fine tune Llama sixty five B, so sixty five billion parameters you're going to need several hundred gigs of GPU uh, memory. And for the average person, right, that's kind of out of reach. And uh, just recently, um, uh, Tim Detmers and his, his collaborators, he's a really impressive PhD student uh, at Washington. They, um, they wrote a paper called QLaura. So this was like quantized Laura. Mm-hmm. And they showed that, you know, with 4-bit quantization, you can run um, and even train, uh, you know, Lama 65B on, on a kind of you know, consumer grade GPU. And um, I think those kind of innovations uh, are things that you wouldn't see from a, a private company uh, because it would be your competitive advantage, right? Why would you share that, that knowledge with the community? And it, it just shows that when you've got a tough problem, which is like, how do you train large models with limited um, you know resources, people get very creative. Um, The other thing that I I think has been quite interesting is um, the evaluation of um, these models, uh, especially these chat models, um, is kind of gradually growing in maturity. So uh, a lot of um, the early uh, evaluation was done using something called um, basically the the Vicuña benchmark. So the idea here was um, let's get GPT-4 to write a bunch of questions. Um, For example, you know, how do I solve this coding puzzle? And then you give that question to the models that you're interested in rating, and then, you know, you get GPT-4 to act as a judge and then kind of compare which model is better than the other. And um, in the early days, this, this you know, showed, oh, uh, Vicuña is like 90% as good as ChatGPT, um, according to that benchmark. Um, but most people who then interacted with Vicuña versus ChatGPT, you can see a fairly big capability gap. I mean, you can see that Vicuña can't hold conversations over many turns effectively. ChatGPT can do things, for example, you just dump a stack trace into it and it will then debug it for you, like unprompted. And so these models were were lacking in in certain areas. And uh, the community has now kind of realized that a lot of these things are often um, evaluating the style. So um, basically, GPT-4, as an example, as a judge, um, will often prefer <clears throat> outputs that are just very wordy because you know ChatGPT is always like a kind of wordy chatbot, um, rather than if they're factually correct or not. And even humans fall for this. So um, th- there's a very nice paper from Berkeley where they essentially saw they showed that you know even human evaluators would get tricked by by essentially ChatGPT. And uh, I think that's like a, a general challenge today in the community is like, how do we know if the models are, are actually uh, very good? And um, I, again, it's something that I, I, I suspect OpenAI has has cracked uh, in, internally, but they're things that, of course, that's your competitive advantage, right? So, so the community is, is going to make the innovation there. Um, and yeah, I mean, we can talk about other things. Like, I think one thing that's kind of been an open question is, um, do you even need reinforcement learning? Um, in the first place. And, uh, you know, this is, we, we know we have this kind of existence proof from OpenAI, but uh, there are other kind of researchers who are sort of skeptical that you truly need reinforcement learning, which has its own finicky problems. And uh, it's kind of exciting to think that, you know, we already have a few candidate alternatives, uh, you know, on the archive, which, um, you know, may prove to be more efficient and also simpler uh, to achieve the same objective.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone's always trying to squeeze out reinforcement learning. It's like a few years ago, it was like, ah, deep reinforcement learning is going to (laughs) be fundamental to artificial general intelligence. And then it's kind of having this renaissance right now. We're like, okay, in order for us to have these approaches, these LLMs be really well aligned with the responses we want. We're going to need reinforcement learning. Finally, it's it's (laughs) back. (laughs) And then you're like, no, actually, we might not need it. We might be able to use simpler approaches. Um, And yeah, it seems like a lot of these instruction tuning approaches, they're just supervised learning. They don't require any reinforcement learning. And yeah, I can personally vouch that we're getting amazing results without uh, reinforcement learning. Um, So very cool. Uh, if people are listening out there that uh, haven't done open source before and they want to get involved with it after they hear the kinds of cool things that you're working on, in particular, you know, they want to get involved with the Hugging, for, the hugging Face Transformers library or some other library, the PyTorch library, uh, how do you recommend they get started?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question, a common one that I often get. I, I would say um, there's a few different ways you can contribute. Um, it, it depends a bit on, like, your background. so. If you're already like a very proficient, say, PyTorch developer, then reading the Transformers code, source code, is is relatively straightforward. So you can immediately, for example, pick up open issues on GitHub or look for open bugs that that haven't been tackled yet and and work on those. Um, But for for people who are a bit more like myself, so I started off being a non-coder. I was quite a late bloomer. I think I was like 28, 29 when I started learning how to code. Um oh really? Yeah, yeah. I'm like oh, wow. <laughs> very very late. And <laughs> for me, for me, the thing was like I was looking at this stuff and I'm like, I have no idea like how to contribute. And actually starting off with like just trying to read the documentation and, and improve the docs um was often the the sort of gateway drug to then actually writing code. Because often when you're trying to understand something, you realize oh there's a gap in in the way it's explained. So I would say those are like the sort of two main routes one is like go through the docs which is more like kind of high level and the other one is to sort of just pick up issues that are on github Um, but the the kind of open source landscape for machine learning is also more diverse than just code right so um, some of the sort of like most impactful um, things that we've seen on the hugging face hub have been from community members who for example created um, a translation of a popular data set or they uh, curated like their own data set, which turned out to be, you know, very useful. Um, so an example of this, right, is the Alpaca um, data set, which was the kind of uh, the, the data set that sort of launched this whole revolution in like Llama instruction models. Um, it was like three grad students at, at Stanford who basically used, you know, uh, ChatGPT to, or I think it was ChatGPT to, to generate um, a, a data set of, of instructions and they trained a model on that. And you know, it was like three hundred bucks, and I think probably a few days' work. So it's kind of like there are different ways you can contribute. And um, the the other one that maybe is worth mentioning is we often have at Hugging Face a lot of events. So we have um, hackathons where people, for example, can uh, get access to things like Google TPUs and train, you know, very cool projects. And so if you want to be part of like the community itself, that's another way of um, you know getting getting your hands dirty and seeing, you know, excitement.
0: Very cool. Great tips for getting started in open source, reading and improving the docs, picking up GitHub issues and things like data securation. Yep. Very cool. Um, all right, Louis. So I actually had a ton more questions that I could have gone over with you, but I also want to get to some of the audience questions that we had. So when I posted sure. a week before recording that I was going to have you on the show, the post got, an extreme amount of engagement. So at the time of recording, over 36,000 impressions, uh, almost 400 reactions, 23 comments, 13 reposts. It's crazy. Um, And some of these questions are really cool. All right. So the first question that I'm going to go over is from Sangeetha. So she's an NLP engineer, um, and she is interested in Hearing about your views on the notion of synthesizing a data set using an enterprise model and then fine tuning it on an open source LLM. So you and I, Luce, we did talk about this earlier, but she mentions uh, that your recent blog post on uh, LLM evaluation was amazing. I wasn't aware about that. I'm going to have to try to make sure to include it in the show notes. Um, and yeah, so I don't know if there's anything else that you want to add for Sangeetha um, on, on this concept, which yeah, we talked about a bit earlier, but you might have more to add for her.
1: Yeah, so the the, the basic process here is like, um, you know, getting a very good instruction data set um, is quite a costly endeavor. Um, because if you use humans, you need to get people to sit down and come up with creative ideas of like, you know, give me a recipe for... Um, pasta and then actually give the recipe, right? So you have this kind of very um, arduous task and, and you can pay companies to do that, but it will cost you um, quite a lot of money. So the, the shortcut today that most people take is they say, well, let's just try to derive this from GPT-4 or from ChatGPT. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, um, OpenAI have this kind of uh, thing in the terms of service which say, you know, you can't use these these outputs from our models to, you know, train competitors to, you know, uh, our stuff. So even though I think, and I'm not a lawyer, so of course don't take this advice. I don't. I'm not sure how enforceable terms of service are. Really, like, I mean, who, who, who knows? That has to be tested. I think in court. But of course, if you're a company, you don't want to go near that. I think. I think mm-hmm. that that's that's too high a risk uh, to take today. So, the the alternative um, I, I would suggest is to maybe see if um, some of the newer models. Um, like Falcon or Lama65B, um, can get you maybe half the way there. So um, I've lately been prompting um, Starcoder, which is a kind of code <coughs> generative model. Um, and it's quite, quite okay at generating some of this synthetic data for, for coding applications. Um, so I think it's probably only maybe a few months away before we're able to do something analogous to like the sort of ChatGPT generation. Um, using a a permissive model. And then those issues will will, will no longer be with us.
0: Nice. Uh, Great answer. Thank you for elaborating some more uh, for us, Louis, on that point. Uh, The next question here comes from Murillo Gustinelli, who is a data scientist at a firm called Insight. And so uh, this also uh, builds upon some of the conversations. It seems like you and I through our conversation hit on a lot of the topics that are most interesting to the to the uh, audience at large um, because this again will build upon something that we already talked about so Murillo points out how Hugging Face has undoubtedly played a significant role in lowering barriers to open source ML with the emergence of LLMs and the increasing complexity and cost of deep learning models how critical do you believe the continued democratization of ML models will be in the near future so um, yeah. What are the challenges and opportunities, um, associated with having, uh, better democratization of ML models, particularly these really large ones. So you, you already made a great point shortly before we started tackling these audience questions on techniques like Q mm-hmm. uh, quantized low rank adaptation. I'm not sure if you have anything else that you'd like to add.
1: Yeah, I think probably for me personally, the, the biggest um, uh, reason to, to try and make sure that we still have open models is that um, uh, as we've seen in the last few months, the community or the collective intelligence of of humanity is able to learn um, and, and discover a, a wide range of, of impressive, cool things. So Qlora is one, but also this whole thing about evaluation and trying to deeply understand, you know, how these how these language models actually work. Um, a lot of this would be much much harder um, if we only had an API um, from you know a small number of companies uh, to work with. So I, I think from just a purely like scientific perspective, um, it's really important that we we're able to um, continue making such models and releasing them. Um, but there are of course several risks, and like one of the the main risks I see is that. Um, at some point, we will have a model that is, you know, fairly capable um, and someone's going to do something bad with it. Uh, I think that's a, it's a bit of an inevitability and bad could be, you know, um, some large misinformation campaign or uh, even worse. And then the, the question will be then, you know, who bears responsibility for that? Like, um, is it the, the, the organization that open sourced the model? Is it the company that hosts the model? Is it ah. uh, you know, <laughs> the individual? And and I feel like society doesn't quite have uh, yet the, the kind of mental model for, for dealing with that. Um, and so what I suspect will probably happen is that uh, techniques like uh, RLHF will become progressively more important um, in the release of, of new open models because um, if you can sort of make some level of guarantee that, okay, this model has been, you know, has some guardrails, um, then you're at least able to sort of partially limit the, the downstream uh, risks. Um, but, uh, I mean, you probably heard this is like a super big topic in, in legal and political circles, like there's the, 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 the Congress hearings and uh, the EU AI Act. And so um, I think all of this stuff is, is really being, you know, negotiated at the societal level. Um, but I, I feel fundamentally that we we would want to have a future with open models because um, it reminds me, you know, a lot of parallels to you know like science. Like when, when I used to be a physicist, there were eras in the Cold War where people didn't share any information, and it's kind of to the detriment of humanity um, to, to do so. And we'll we'll see how it plays out. But uh, yeah, exciting times either way.
0: Yeah, exciting times for sure. And there certainly are risks to. So there's pros and cons to these two different kinds of schools of thought on should companies like OpenAI be keeping every, keeping their secrets to themselves? Um, you know, Maybe some government auditing body gets to access what they're doing, but we don't want any actor to be able to have access to a system that approaches artificial general intelligence or even the systems like we have today that could be used okay. for misinformation. Um, and then, yeah, in the other camp, it's this idea that if everything's open source, then you can really get in there and understand exactly what's going on. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's complex, but it's nice to see that unlike some of the other um, issues that we've had in recent history with digital platforms, um, things like social media feeds, polarizing mm. politics, that isn't something that politicians got ahead of. And I think they're kind of realizing the mistake there and trying to make sure that that same kind of issue uh, doesn't show. Well, I mean, some issues are, are going to show up, but we're there's a lot of people in government, in commerce, in, um, yeah, and, and and just in the open source community that are trying to get ahead of these issues that we have in AI. And so I'm personally optimistic that, well, it is inevitable that some bad things will happen, that the worst things hopefully won't <laughs> And that even some of those the, the bad things will be mitigated. Um, so, very cool. There were lots of other questions, but i i've I've gone over all of them now, and it seems like we tackled all of them. Um, you know, the, or the main points of these questions
1: throughout <laughs> I mean, our episode. Life,
0: we've answered it. <laughs> <laughs> um, And, uh, and then, so I've got to apologize to our listeners. I actually, I promised someone at the time of recording just yesterday on LinkedIn, there's, uh, a listener named Jonathan Bowne out there. And he, (laughs) uh, he said, uh, I just got to the end of your most recent episode. And at the end of that episode, you mentioned a book giveaway. And he was like, I, I, I guess I'm too late because the way that I run these book giveaways is um, when the episode comes out. So your episode, uh, your episode Lewis will be out on a Tuesday morning, uh, New York time. And so I'll make a post around 8 a.m. New York time announcing the episode. And I'll say the first five people that respond that they'd like a copy of Lewis's book, we'll get a copy uh, generously from O'Reilly. So that is happening again. (laughs) (laughs) And I am supposed to mention it at the beginning of episodes, obviously, um, (laughs) so so that the eager listeners, uh, anyway, I guess. So, so I promised Jonathan Bound. he was like, I just got to the end of this episode and you have this O'Reilly deal. Like I got to your post, but I'm a week late. So, I'm sure all the books are given away. And in fact, they are. And so, apologies again to those of you who are hearing this.
1: <laughs> On the other hand, <laughs> too late.
0: it rewards the person who listens, right? <laughs> yeah, who listens right to the end, right when the episode comes yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. That's right. It does <laughs> true reward it that, that behavior. Um, so, yes, um, that, yeah, there's a book giveaway again. Yeah, thank you very much to O'Reilly for offering. To, to have, so yeah, the five people that write on my uh, LinkedIn post announcing Lewis's episode, uh, and i'll I'll mention it in that post as well. Um, yeah, we'll get a book and it's a fantastic book. I've got my copy here, and it's been invaluable to me as as my company Nebula has uh, forayed more and more into generative AI, particularly with open source approaches. So thank you, Lewis, and thank you, hugging face. For everything that you've done for us, now, Louis. Before I let you go, I always ask for a book recommendation other than your own book.
1: Uh, do you have one for us? Yeah. So I've been reading. This is nothing to do with uh, um, you know transformers or machine learning. It's uh, it's called the making of the atomic bomb and um maybe it has more uh, in common <laughs> well in fact uh, it, it was recommended to me by, by a friend who who was saying hey you know i've been thinking about existential risks and stuff uh you know there are some parallels and um what's uh what's really interesting um in the book is it's it's a really an in-depth history of you know from like basically world war one pre-world war one all the way through to to the bomb um is like the extreme amounts of government-level coordination that was required, uh, first of all, to build the technology, but then later to to figure out how to regulate it. And um, I, I think the, 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 the cool part of this is that there's at least, we, we managed to sort of more or less survive that part and figure out how to kind of live in a world with like very, very, you know, scary, scary weapons. And so I'm sort of still optimistic, like you said, that, um, you know, we will find a way through, uh, you know, the, the, the next few years of, of AI development. Um, I, I think the book is very nice. And if you like, you know, technical physics and stuff, it's got a lot of stuff in there too. So I recommend it. Nice. Cool recommendation. Lewis, thank you so much for being
0: generous with your time today. I know we've run over on the allocated recording slots. I really appreciate it. It's been a fascinating episode and I've learned a ton. I'm sure our audience has as well. Uh, Lewis, before I let you go, how can people follow you after this episode, if they would like to hear more from
1: you? Sure. So these days I'm mostly on LinkedIn. Um, so just look up Lewis Tunstall. Um, you, you can see my face. There's, I don't think there's too many of us on there. <laughs> and, uh, until recently I used to be on Twitter, um, underscore, um, L E W T U N. So Luton. And uh, yeah, I, my phone broke, and I got locked out. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, Elon <laughs> seems to have fired all of the um, <laughs> support staff, so I can't get back in. Uh, but one day, uh, I'll get back in. And then you know, you might see me on Twitter again. Nice. All right. Uh, good luck.
0: Maybe someone at Twitter is listening and can fix this situation. Statistically speaking, there probably isn't. <laughs> 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 um, OK. All right, Uh, Lewis, thank you so much. Uh, Awesome to have you on the show. Amazing to be able to go full circle with this amazing book of yours that I'm reading. And yeah, uh, best of luck to you. And maybe we can be catching up with you again someday in the future and hearing how your journey is coming along.
1: Thanks a lot, John. It's been a pleasure.
0: Boom, what a sensational guest who made for a sensational episode. In today's episode, Lewis filled us in on how Transformers are all you need for state-of-the-art NLP models, how we can efficiently label data using few-shot prompts to the APIs of cutting-edge models like GPT-4, how we can distill, quantize, and or prune LLMs to make them affordable and fast in production, how RLHF uses human-label data to align LLM outputs with what users are hoping for, and how you can get involved in open-source yourself by improving GitHub documentation, resolving GitHub issues, or curating datasets. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Lewis's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 695. That's superdatascience.com slash 695. If you too would like to ask questions of future guests of the show, like several audience members did during today's episode, then consider following me on LinkedIn or Twitter, as that's where I post who upcoming guests are and ask you to provide your inquiries for them. And If you enjoyed this episode, nothing's more valuable to me than if you take a few seconds to rate the show on your favorite podcasting app or give it a thumbs up on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. And of course, if you have friends or colleagues that would love the show, let them know. All right, thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks of course to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another fantastic episode for us today for enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you. We are deeply grateful to our sponsors. Please consider supporting the show by checking out our sponsors links, which you can find in the show notes. And finally, thanks of course to you for listening. I'm so grateful to have you tuning in and I hope I can continue to make episodes you love for years and years to come. Well, until next time my friend, keep on rocking it out there and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.